0: Bread from Heaven is the title of my sermon. Um, The big idea, God graciously provides bread that will satisfy us forever. Eat the bread. Eat the bread. Now, probably not wise to have an opening illustration related to food, but I'm going to go against my better judgment. So I I love my wife's cooking. Uh, My wife is a wonderful Chef, cook. Uh, she does a great job serving our family in that way, and I'm very thankful. Many of you are, are gifted in the kitchen as well. Uh, Adam, I- I've bragged uh, about your smoking skills. Uh, smoking meat, by the way. If you don't know Adam, I've got to get some context there. And then your brother, Aaron, as well. You guys did a great job serving us recently at Man Camp. Thank you for that again, brother. Um, but there's one person that. I'll be honest, her food is life-changing, and that is my wife's grandma, and so I see where she gets it. So Mimi, and maybe this just comes with maturity and age, more experience, right? When she cooks, it's an event, right? I mean, you know, a meal is oftentimes monotonous. We eat daily, we have to to survive, and so we take food for granted. I hope we don't, I hope we Receive each meal as a gift from the Lord. It's a sign of His grace and goodness to us. But Mimi, I prepare weeks in advance. I I, I try to make as much room in here as I can because I just want to enjoy it. And so, if you know, now you guys are all going to invite yourselves over to Thanksgiving or Christmas, but seriously, it's not just the main course, it's the sides, it's the desserts. It's like a perfect tent. It's all just wonderful. It is a true culinary experience. Uh, but here's the thing, and I, I mean, again, I think probably most of us can attest to something like that, there's someone in our family that is just gifted that way, they make wonderful food and we enjoy it and we give thanks for it, um, but if you're like me, what happens to, maybe for me it's an hour later, just because I enjoy food, most of us, three, four hours later, what's, what happens? We're hungry again, right, because that, that meal does not satisfy us indefinitely, we, we have to eat again, Right? Mankind, all humans, desire satisfaction. We desire fulfillment, right? We, and we look for it because of sin uh, in other places. We look for it in our relationships, uh, our bank accounts, even our careers. But we know that none of these things have the power to fulfill us, to satisfy us, right? But because, again, the world looks to these things, They look to these things for that sense of fulfillment, completion, joy. But what happens? After time, the realization sets in, I'm still hungry. I'm still hungry. We all, because we're made in the image of God, have deep longings. And I think you can can relate to this. I know you can. We have deep longings for satisfaction, for peace, and for true joy. And only in Christ can these longings be fulfilled. Amen? Only Jesus can truly satisfy us. Only Christ can bring us to God. He is the bread from heaven come down to give life. Therefore, mankind will never know peace until they know the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Man, Exodus is a tough book. It's frustrating. Exodus 15 and 16 are full of surprise, (laughs) disappointment, and God's abundant grace. And context, which is really the story up to this point, is extremely important for understanding chapters 15 and 16. God has revealed himself up to this point powerfully. He's done that before the people of Israel. They have seen his power. They've seen his might. They've seen the plagues of God. Therefore, they know the power of his wrath. They know that he is not to be trifled with they've seen his faithfulness. Amen? They've seen his faithfulness. He acts on his saving promises. That's a huge theme in Exodus. They've seen his goodness. He's a good God. They've also seen the providential presence of God through his deliverance, both with the the Passover, which was a couple weeks back, and last week, the crossing of the Red Sea. And yet, only moments after their rescue, the people are heard once again grumbling against Moses, and ultimately against who? They're grumbling against God. So what we have in Exodus fifteen sixteen this serves as a preview both of Israel's ongoing disobedience and faithless behavior during the Exodus and of God's incredible provision and in grace in the face of such rebellion. God's provision of water and manna in the wilderness for a stubborn and spiritually blind people is a beautiful picture of the gospel to come. So if we were going to summarize chapters 15 and 16 of Exodus, we could say the irony of Israel's response is quickly brought to light once we remember what the Lord has already done. I mean, you you read this and you're like, come on! But as Aaron pray and as I pray, we we do this as well, don't we? Life gets hard. The kids aren't getting ready on time for Sunday morning. You're out of milk. I mean, those seem petty, but those are triggers for us, right? I mean, ah! And we grumble and we complain and we forget the incredible blessing of salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us. Um, I, I don't watch much cooking shows, but when I'm at my in-law's house, for some reason, that's what we watch. And there's this show, uh, Bobby Filet. He's a well-known chef. Uh, He has several restaurants. And there's this show, and I think I've seen it probably four or five times now, where he invites onto his show other up-and-coming chefs, right, some more established than others, and they have to face him. And the cool part is, he lets them make their signature dish. He then has to make the same dish And then they bring in these judges to decide who made the better dish. And from my experience, do you know who always wins? Bobby Filet. I'm like, bro, get it. And he does every time. At least when I've seen. him, I'm sure he's lost before. Imagine me and Bobby Filet are best friends. Did you know that, by the way? We're not. I don't know him. But imagine we're good friends, and he's over at the house, and we're hanging out. Uh, We're arm wrestling. That's what guys do when they come to my house, I guess. But we're hanging out, we're, we're talking, and all of a sudden I realize I have to make a gourmet dinner. Uh-oh. And I'm not really qualified for that. And so I start to stress. And, and again, I got Flay right here. He's like, bro, I, I'm here, man. Like, I'm right here. Oh, Bobby, what am I going to do? This isn't going to work. He'd say, what? Bro, you got Bobby filet. He's proven himself time and time again. Just unleash the guy. And if I started to panic and worry, you would say, what a fool, Chris, right? And that's just a, a picture of what we see happening in our passage. What I want to do this morning, I want to provide a section-by-section analysis of chapters 15 to 16. Again, we're starting in verse 22, the end of 15, after the Song of Moses, and then we'll continue all the way through 16. So, number one, I have this in your notes. This is Exodus fifteen twenty-four to sixteen one to 3, and I've titled it, Good Grief. It's like, it's Charlie Brown, right? Good grief. Is that Charlie Brown? I love Charlie Brown. Good grief. Grumbling again? Exodus 15 to 16 marks the continuation of a trend, an unfortunate trend amongst God's people Israel, a trend of fear, distrust, and grumbling. This has been seen and it continues to be the case. Let me give a few examples. Exodus 14 to 12, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold... The Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Complain, complain, complain. Exodus 15 23 and 24, when they came to Marah, this was uh, part of our section today, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And again, Exodus sixteen two and 3, same thing. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. The irony, and it's really thick, by the way, it's not subtle. The irony is that every instance of fear, distrust, and grumbling follows after a mighty demonstration of God's power and provision for his people. But again, let's not kid ourselves. Who else is guilty of this? I'll raise both hands. On this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, we often find ourselves questioning God's faithfulness, his goodness, and his provision. Again, Lord, help us. That's the first section. Next, we have Exodus 15, 25 to 26, and then 16, 4 to 8, God's response to Israel's grumbling. Okay, God responds to their grumbling. Now, God, in his grace, doesn't respond to their hunger with heat, fire. Oh, you're hungry? How about deep fried? That could have happened. God could have done that. But no, God graciously provides for them per usual. Exodus 16, 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. God's provision, this is really important, God's provision would test their obedience and dependence on him. Recall the Garden of Eden. When was the last time you read Genesis 1, 2, and 3? God's provision is everywhere. It is everywhere. God is so good. He he makes Adam and Eve. He makes them for fellowship. He makes them for his glory, to spread his glory. And he gives them everything they need. But... There's one tree they're not to eat from. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it was meant to test their obedience. The tree, if you're curious, works by not eating from it, right? That's wisdom. Wisdom is obeying God. So the tree works. How do we get wise? How do we grow in wisdom? By obeying. And so the tree of the knowledge of good and evil works by not eating from it. That's wisdom. It's obeying the Lord. Genesis 2, 16 and 17 And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God desires our obedience. And this is seen throughout God's word. Exodus 15, 25 and 26. This is part of our passage. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep, that means to obey all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. And I would say this is the key text. This is the key text in Exodus 15 to 16. What's going on here? Well, Charles Spurgeon, who's the great... British Baptist pastor, theologian. One of my favorites to read, by the way. I really enjoy Spurgeon. He described the wilderness as the Oxford and Cambridge for God's students. He wrote, there, talking about the wilderness, there they went to the university and he taught and trained them. And they took their degree before they entered into the promised land. As Philip Ryken notes, God gave his people these commands to see what their works would reveal about their relationship with him. Obedience was the test of their faith. Remember what Jesus said in John 14, 15? If you love me, you'll, you'll keep my commands. But whether they obeyed or not, there will be consequences. This is the way a covenant always works. This is still Philip Riken. It contains promises and warnings with blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. God said, if you will diligently listen... And if you do that which is right, then I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. Right? None of the the curses, the plagues. For I am the Lord your healer. The curse is implied. If God's people did not obey, they would suffer the same plagues they had witnessed in Egypt. So there is grace in the warning. Amen? There is grace in the warning. And, And note, this is so important. If you get nothing else this morning, get this. Note the order. What comes first? It wasn't obedience and then rescue. What came first? Rescue. And then what follows rescue? The call to obey. That is massive. Amen? If it were reversed, would we have any hope? No, right? The people of Israel were rescued to obey. Their obedience was to function as their response of gratitude for God's salvation. This points us to the gospel. If you're familiar with Ephesians 2 1 to 10, we see the same order. We're saved by grace, through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. And then you get to verse 10, and what do we see? God has prepared good works for his people, his saved people, to walk in. We're not saved by the good works, we're saved for the good works. As one pastor writes, it's a great quote. He says, Religion operates on the principle of this is religion. Religion operates on the principle of I obey, therefore I am accepted by God. That sounds very worldly because it is. Right? I obey, I'm a good person, I do good things, therefore God accepts me. He owes me. He's in my debt. Whoa. <laughs> Bro. Bro Hannah, if you're a female. He goes on to write, oh, this is so good. The basic operating principle of the gospel is I am accepted by God, Through the work of Jesus Christ, therefore I obey. Did you catch the difference? Religion, I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. The gospel, I'm accepted by God through the work of Jesus Christ, therefore I, what? I obey. Good. Let's talk about the purpose of God's miraculous provision. This is a huge theme in Exodus. We've seen it almost every week. Why does God do miracles? Why does he reveal himself? On the platform of human history. Why? Why does God show up and make himself known? I just gave you the answer. So that he might be known. (laughs) The purpose of God's miraculous provision. A saving knowledge of the Lord. Verse 6. Now we're in chapter 16. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel. At evening you shall what? You shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out Of the land of Egypt. How would they know? What what would God do? He would provide. He would provide the manna and the quail. He would provide for their needs. So that they might know that God is the God of rescue. He's the God of salvation. All that God does is so that his people might know that he is the Savior God, the Lord. Again, why does this theme continue to surface again and again? The purpose of the Exodus is... Knowledge, a knowledge that transforms, a knowledge that leads to God being glorified. Exodus 6 2, verse 6 again, and then verse 8. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, and with great acts of judgment, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. What does God want us to know? He is the He is the Lord. And his people will know that through his acts of rescue, through his miraculous provision, that he is the he is the Lord. Exodus 10, 1-2, And the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart, and tell the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly, with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Why does God want Israel to learn this, namely that he is the Lord? Now this is really helpful, okay, so just put your thinking caps on and stay with me. Are you here? All right, let's keep going. When they truly know the Lord relationally and who he is, then, and only then, will Israel be truly satisfied. Amen? Only then will they be truly satisfied. The the sweet water, okay, the sweet water provided in Exodus 15 and the bread from heaven provided in Exodus 16 were meant to point Israel to the Lord. It was meant to convey to them that the goodness, faithfulness, and sovereignty of God was on display. When God provides, we see his character, and his character is meant to engender what? Faith, worship, all. Again, it was a call to trust and obey, like we sang about this morning, and not only that, but to be fully satisfied in him. God's Now just catch this. God's provision of water and bread, we would call these daily essentials, right? These are essentials for daily life. We're meant to teach Israel to be satisfied in him, in the Lord. The Lord God has revealed himself as the creator, the eternal creator, the one true God, the savior of his people. And they've been given every reason, they've been given every reason to trust him and to obey him. These gifts, water and manna, were meant to point them to the greater gift, the Lord and his presence. Does that make sense? These things, again, these were daily essentials. But what's more essential than that? I mean, what do we need to live? We need water and food. Clark will say, "Hey, so Dad, I mean, if you had to go without water or food, which one? Well, either way, I'm going to die. I guess I'll get about three weeks out of you know. Uh, if you have water, you can live what three three weeks with no food. But if you have no water, what three days? So either way, I'm going to die. But I guess I'll have a little more life if I have water. <laughs> so these are essentials. But what is God teaching Israel? What's more essential than Water and food. What gives eternal life? What satisfies forever? The Lord does. The Lord does. I hope that makes sense. What does Exodus 15 and 16 teach us? Well, God responds to our gargantuan sin with his glorious grace. <laughs> Verse 7 And in the morning you shall see, oh, the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. God appears, he's seen. He's present with his people. His visible, glorious presence was meant to provide assurance. It was meant to engender faith in God. Here's the next section. Exodus 16, 9-12, God's promise of provision. Verses 11-12. And, and the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat. And in the morning you shall be filled with Bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Note the repetition. Did you catch it? Twice now, God speaks of the motive behind his provision for his people, namely that they might know him. He wants Israel to know who they're dealing with. He's not only the God, but he is their God. He is for them. He wants them to know him. Here's the application this is so helpful, this is so beautiful. The God of the universe, and there's only one, okay? There's one God. He is the creator of all things. He is the judge. He is the author of salvation. That God can become your heavenly father. You can know him, but that knowledge only comes through Jesus Christ. Amen? That's profound, that we can know this God. Why did he do what he did? So that we might... Know him. And again, that word, what kind of knowledge? It's a relational knowledge. God wants to be known. And we know that because of the gospel. Amen? We can know him through Jesus Christ. Let's keep moving. Next section, Exodus 16, 13 to 30, a pitiful pattern of disobedience. Twice in this section, Exodus 16, 13 to 30, we see the Israelites blatantly disobeying God's commands. Verses 19 and 20, and Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen. They did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms, and it stank. And Moses was (laughs) angry with them. Listen, I love leftovers. We don't typically have leftovers in our house. Sometimes we do. But I mean, it, I mean, again, talking about food. This is not a good, yeah. This is distracting, maybe for some. But listen, oftentimes leftovers are better than the original meal. Some food just age well, right? You know what I'm talking about. So what's the deal with God's command that they leave nothing over for the next day? Why no leftovers? Because gathering leftovers was a mark of what distrust. I don't know if God's going to provide tomorrow, even though he said he would. Let's just, let's just keep a little bit in case God's having an off day. Does God have off days? No, he's perfect. Amen? They didn't trust him. It was their refusal to obey was a refusal to trust God's provision for the next day. God was calling his people to walk in daily obedience and to trust him each and every day with their lives. And guess what? He's calling us to do the same. This is how Jesus, our Lord, teaches us how to pray, by the way. Do you recall the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily daily bread. What do we learn about God's character here? He provides graciously and abundantly for his people. Now, where else do they disobey? This is verses 22 to 23 and verse 26. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each, and when all the leaders... Of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Today is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. So they, they could have leftovers for one day, and what day was that? It was a Sabbath. Again, there was only one day permitted to keep leftovers and that was the sabbath why what was the significance of the seventh day the sabbath moses refers to it in our passage as a day of solemn rest a holy sabbath to the lord now first maybe you didn't know this but sabbath means stoppage (laughs) it means stoppage and therefore god's people were to stop their work on this day why we do know that in the ancient world, gathering food was the most basic type of work. So they weren't to do that. But rather than, it's not just, again, this was not a day just to be lethargic and to sit around and do nothing. We don't do that today, do we? Rather than simply resting, the Sabbath was meant to be a day of worshipful reflection on God. It was a day for Israel to reorient their focus on their service to the Lord. Furthermore, the Sabbath looks back to what? God worked six days, and on the seventh he he rested. So it looks back to creation. the, The Sabbath was a reminder of God's role as the creator of the universe. And when you're reminded of that truth, what should be our response? When we gather every Lord's Day, what are we doing? We're being reminded of the gospel. We're being reminded that Jesus is Lord. And what should our response be? Worship, praise, awe, adoration. Again, such a reminder. This is why it's so important. Such a reminder was meant to lead them back to looking trustingly and reverently at the awesome in Almighty God. The Creator God is worthy of our worship. And every Sabbath was to be a reminder of that great truth. He is worthy. He is the Creator. He is the author of life. He is the author of salvation. And they what? They blow it. They blow it. Again, verses 27 and 28. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And what were they told not to do? To go out and gather. But what did they do? They went out and gathered. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Here's the last section Exodus 16, 31 to 35. Pass on the story of rescue and provision. Verses 32 and 33 Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an Omer of it be kept throughout your generations, right? The, the manna. You know what manna means? What is it? (laughs) What is it? That's what it means. (laughs) So that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations so that they might what? Remember. The, The preservation of manna for future, this was not like a, Anyone have like a, a secret snack hoard? <laughs> if you're smart, you're not going to raise your hand, man. Yeah. Man, what you talking? I got to go to the bathroom, right? Don't go to the bathroom, by the way. I'm just saying, this was not that. This was not a, a secret snack hoard. The preservation of manna for future generations was to serve as a reminder of God's miraculous rescue and provision for his people Don't forget who God is and what he's done. That's the purpose. Don't forget who God is and what he's done. Think about Sunday mornings. Why do we gather so we don't forget who God is and what he's done? Why do we take the Lord's Supper so we don't forget who God is and what he's done? Amen? And we're doing that when? Tonight. So come back. All right, let's answer a few questions rapid fire. Are you ready? Number one. What does this passage teach us about the character of God? I told you at the beginning of this this sermon series that I'm going to try to answer these questions every week. What does this passage teach us about God, his character? How does it point to Christ in the gospel? What does it reveal about man? Number one, what does this passage teach us about the character of God? Well, first up, God provides for his people. His economy is unlimited. Amen? That's massive. Two, God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. How does God respond to their grumbling? He provides graciously. Amen? Number three, God is present with his people. Number four, God speaks to his people. Number five, God reveals himself to his people. And then finally, God wants us to know him. God wants us to know him. How does this passage point us to Jesus Christ? A little more time here. How does this passage point us to Jesus Christ? John 1, 14. And the word became flesh, and the Greek there literally tabernacled among us. That sounds familiar. That sounds like Exodus. Well, it is. That was intentional, by the way. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What we learn about God's character in the Old Testament is highlighted in the Gospels with Who? Jesus Christ. God takes the initiative. He comes to us. The glory of God would once again reveal his glorious presence through Jesus Christ. God comes to sinners. God dwells amongst sinners. God reveals his glory to sinners. And again, this was most clearly and beautifully seen through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. But again, Christ came not simply to make God known, but he made it so that we could know God. Amen? Christ made it so that we could know God. And he did this by satisfying God's wrath against human sinfulness. Jesus at the cross took our sin and the punishment for our sin, and he satisfied God's wrath against our sin in our place so that we who trust in Jesus could be forever pardoned. Amen? forever forgiven, forever brought into God's family. Through faith in Christ, if you trust in Jesus, you can know God relationally. How long? Forever. When you know that truth, doesn't it make all grumbling look utterly foolish? When we know that through Christ, we can know God relationally forever, and yet we grumble about things our work our family our friends this world come on christians let's mature amen we have every reason to be thankful we have every reason to remain in a state of joy because if we know christ then we know god relationally not just now but forever john 14:6 jesus said i'm the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now hold on to that. Then we get to John 6. I love John 6. John 6 is tough, by the way. I think it's 76 verses, so it's a long chapter, but there's some tough teaching there. And you'll actually see that at the end of the chapter because some of those who follow Jesus kind of peace out. This is just too hard, what he's saying. But Jesus says something really important. He says, I am the what? This is one of the I am statements. The bread. I'm the bread of life. Now, this was uh, Sermon 1 introduction. All of you remember that in Exodus. You were there. But I talked about how the first Exodus points to a greater Exodus to come. And the Old Testament screams of a new Exodus. And again, think of Exodus as rescue, as deliverance. God's word looks ahead to a new, greater Exodus, amen? And if you read Luke's Gospel in chapter 9, Jesus is actually talking about it with Moses and Elijah. He uses that word in the Greek, exodon. He was speaking to them about the exodon, the exodus. What exodus? I mean, what greater than parting of Red Sea and plagues and miracles and, you know, pillar of fire and pillar of cloud? What's greater than that? How about forgiveness of sin? How about a relationship with God? How about God himself leaving his throne of glory, becoming a baby, living the life we cannot live, dying in our place, and defeating death by coming back three days later so that sinners like us could be forever reconciled to God and no longer be God's enemies but his friends and his children? How about that? Amen? Amen? Is there a greater exodus? Yeah. Who brought it about? Jesus. Jesus much I want to say. Um, all right. Just for me, later today, read Deuteronomy 31 to 6. Okay, it points to the greater exodus to come. Deuteronomy 31 to 6. If you read, I'm not, this is a lot, I'm not saying today, but if you read Isaiah 40 to 55, it speaks of a new or second exodus to come. Isaiah forty-three nineteen. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way In the wilderness, in rivers, in the desert. Isaiah 52, 11 and 12. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Again, the Bible tells us that humanity is enslaved to sin, evil, and death. We need a... We need an exodus. I guess it's an. We need a-n in exodus. We need a rescue. And Jesus himself came to bring about that rescue. John 6. We're going to end with this. Almost. John 6. John 6 contains the feeding of the 5,000. Here, this is really cool, by the way. There's exodus language all over John 6. Jesus is here dramatically reenacting the exodus. What does Jesus do that's comparable to Exodus 15 and 16. He miraculously provides food, right? Now, the audience, the Jews at that time, would have clearly made the connection between what Jesus was doing and saying and what God had already done during the first Exodus. Let's just read quickly. John 6, 32 to 35, and then verse 58. Jesus then said to them, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, "'it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, "'but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven.' For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Can I read that one more time, please? Verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Amen. They they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Ooh. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And in verse fifty-eight, this is the bread that comes down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread lives forever. Again, I love Mimi's cooking. Girls, eighty-seven. Should have said that out loud. About like, Chris? Don't do that. That's not considerate. That's not very gentlemanlike. She's. She looked great for age, by the way. You would guess maybe 68. I don't know. Anyways, I I hope she heard that. You eat Mimi's food, and it's so good. But for me, an hour later, I'm ready to go back for seconds, thirds, fourths, fifths. The the point is this, friends. I mean, you eat, and you're hungry, but you, you take in Jesus by faith, and you're forever satisfied. Amen? Are you satisfied today? Has that deep longing been met? Maybe today you're looking in all the wrong places. You're looking to your bank account. If I can just get that, you know, an extra zero. Or my career, if I can just get that bump. Or maybe a significant other. But friends, only in Christ can true, lasting satisfaction be found. Because only Christ can bring us to God. And if you don't know God, the one true God revealed in Jesus, you will never know satisfaction. Is true. Because in Christ, our deepest longings are met and not only met but exceeded. Eat the heavenly bread. <laughs> how do we eat the bread? Jesus tells us how do we eat the bread? The bread that satisfies. How do we take in Jesus? By faith. Through coming to Jesus in faith. So come to Jesus in faith. Trust in Him for provision, for rescue. You have to acknowledge that you can do nothing to save yourself. You can do nothing to make yourself right with God only through trusting in the one who lived the perfect life, died the sacrificial death, and rose again. Can we be reconciled, brought into fellowship with God, and that forever? Two more questions, and then I'm going to pray. And this is rapid fire, so if you're filling in the blanks, you just got to stay with me. Number three, what does this passage teach us about humanity, about us? we're sinful. Number one, we're disobedient. Number two, we often fail to trust in God. Number three, we we try to do things on our own, don't we? We try to do things on our own. Number four, we take God's mercy and grace for granted. Number five, we need rescue. We need rescue. Number six, we need a perfectly obedient Savior. How often do we forget the gospel? Lord, help us. And number four, how can we apply this passage to our own lives? Number one, trust in God's provision. And who is God's provision? Who is the bread from heaven? Jesus. And then treasure Jesus supremely. And live a life of obedience and gratitude for God's grace. Again, what's religion? Obedience first, right? And then salvation. What's the gospel? Oh, you've been saved through Christ. And what follows? Obedience. And number four, I think this is so important. This is at the heart of our gathering. Pass on the story of rescue and provision. Why do we gather? To remember, to pass it on. And why do we go out and share the gospel? To pass it on. Is Christ worthy? Is he worthy to give our lives to? To live our lives for? Yes. I had some more passages I want to read, but... Suffice it to say this, in Christ we have all that we need, all the resources, all the grace for living a life of faithful obedience to God. In Christ we have the greatest gift of all. God knows what we need, and he provides. We needed rescue, and he provided. We needed bread from heaven, and who came? Jesus, the bread of life. Take him in by faith. Continue to take him in by faith. And live for him. He's worthy. He's worthy. Eat the bread. It's good. Amen? It's good. Who's taking in the bread? Are you satisfied? Let me ask this question. I'm going to pray. Do you know anyone today who has not taken in the bread? Friends, family members who have not been satisfied in Jesus? Give them the bread, give them the good news. Amen? So take in the bread and give the bread. Taking the bread in. Give the bread. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus, the Son of God, was sent by you as a gift, a gift of your grace, the bread from heaven come down to give life to the world. And we thank you that by grace we've taken in, those who know Jesus have taken in that bread. We've been satisfied. We continue to be satisfied. And we know that we'll be satisfied forever because through the bread, through Jesus Christ, we have a relationship with God. Through Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness. Through Jesus Christ, we're declared righteous. No longer guilty because of sin, but innocent because Jesus, your righteousness, has been given to us. I pray that, Father, you would remind us today of the gospel, but also remind us of those in our lives that don't know Jesus, who have not taken in the bread of life, who have not come to Jesus in faith by your grace. And I pray that they would weigh heavy on our hearts and that, Father, this week you would give us boldness and opportunity to take the good news to them, to make them aware of the bad news, that apart from Christ there is only death, eternal death, but in Christ there is life forever. So, Father, use us as your church, as your blood-bought people on mission to go and make disciples that make disciples for your glory and the good of others, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.